Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast contains explicit language. This week saw what might be the beginning of an electoral wave by Democrats. We'll talk with Daniel Marins and Elise Foley about whether this is the beginning of the end of Trumpism. The Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia rounded up his political opponents. Akbar Ahmed and Jessica Schulberg explain what it means for regional stability and what Jared Kushner might have had to do with it. And the latest mass shooting gave way to the latest frenzy of conspiracy theories. Dana Liebelson and Paul Blumenthal break down the lies. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this is So That Happened, the HuffPost Politics podcast about things that happened in politics. Hello, this is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in our HuffPost studio by my colleagues Elise Foley. Hello. And Daniel Marins. Hey. And we had a huge week, perhaps even a watershed week in the Trump resistance, as some people call it, because Democrats won a whole bunch of elections in Virginia, in New Jersey, and in Washington state. And uh, there was a big ballot referendum in the state of Maine about health insurance. A ton of stuff happened. Daniel Marins was the HuffPost reporter who did the most stories and covered the most races for us. Daniel, this is being interpreted a lot of different ways. I think it looks like a harbinger of a democratic wave in the next in the midterm elections coming up, which, you know, that does tend to happen according to historical patterns with a new president and the Congress. But what do you think is going on as someone who covered these races closely? In an off-year election, and not just an off-year election, but an off-off-year election, because literally there are only a handful of states that have major races, the year after the presidential race. It's not midterms. It's the year after the presidential race. Turnout matters, right? Because turnout tends to be lower. And what we saw was just that Democrats were way more motivated to get to the polls. Every every political operative, every activist that I was talking to, pollsters, saw these trends actually relatively early on, they just weren't sure of exactly how much they would pan out. And ultimately, not only did Ralph Northam, the Democrat, win for governor and the, the lieutenant governor candidate Justin Fairfax and Attorney General Mark Herring get reelected, but the, the Democrats in Virginia especially, and I think that this is really a story that exceeded anybody's expectations, flipped 16 as of now. There's still some recounting being done, potentially, but flipped 16 House of Delegates seats. To put this in perspective, so that's a 32-vote swing. They almost took the House of Delegates. They almost took it, and, and that, was, that was just on nobody's radar. There was nobody who was predicting that going in, certainly least of all the Democratic Party of Virginia. Weren't they hoping for, like, at best... 
four to six or S- six something to, like that. Six to eight okay. was the was the line that I was given, and then I heard it subsequently repeated. So I think it kind of came down from headquarters that that was like the talking point. That would be a successful night, and and because going into this, people forget now. <laughs> 24 hours later, people forget. But <laughs> Monday there was, and, and Tuesday, actually, there was a lot of hemming and hoying and sturm and drong about oh, the fact that Northam was kind of a wet noodle who had run this sort of wishy-washy campaign, and he was barely going to squeak by. They were going to drag him across the finish line. It was worse than that. He was going to lose. He was going to lose, and people were already sort of, you know, writing the eulogies for Tom Perez, the DNC chairman, and... Democrats and, uh, in disarray. Right, right. And, and the truth is, it, it really would have been catastrophic had they not pulled it off, because the the sense was that if you could not harness the anti-Trump energy in a state that had rejected Trump by five points in 2016, in a state with a popular Democratic governor, and and now a year after the Trump election, with all these disappointments in the special elections, then that it would just be extremely disappointing to activists and that it would – not only that, it would also embolden Republicans to run on the Trump playbook because the Republican there, Ed Gillespie – Establishment Ed, uh, you know, as his primary opponent called him. That was was the nickname his his, – Corey Stewart, his primary challenger, called him, you know – did not fit the populist Trump profile, but decided to make his entire ad strategy about fear-mongering over undocumented immigrants, gangs, sex offenders, and former felons, and, of and, course, like the Ralph Confederate Northam, monuments. Like, Ralph, like Ed Gillespie's ads, I saw, I think, all of them because they played in D.C. because it's part of the TV market of Northern Virginia. His ads were all that Ralph Northam was going to have a bunch of – MS-13 sex offenders, like, in your house. Right. Tattooed guys. In some cases, there was at least one scene that was actually filmed that was footage from a prison in El Salvador that he used in the ad. You know, of, like, people, like, streaming over a wall or something like that. Um, It was just – it was pretty remarkable. And then, you know, on the campaign trail, he would just be like, I just want Virginia to get back to growth. I want to cut income taxes in Virginia. Oh, MS-13. Yeah, you know, uh, sanctuary cities, they're not good. They're not good. And then the ad campaign would just be this, just like, it wasn't even a dog whistle. It was it was a fire alarm of, of really racial fear-mongering. So, the off-year election trend notwithstanding, the Virginia is a blue state fact notwithstanding, it's it seems to me, just on an intuitive level, that this is a big deal, that an establishment Republican ran a Trump-style racist campaign and got completely destroyed on election day. It, it's huge. I mean, it basically says that racism doesn't sell as much as you thought it would. And I think a lot of us, sadly, were having to wonder that after November 2016 because a, a racial demagogue the likes of which we've never seen before managed to to sell the country on it and, and get elected. And so this basically says at the very least – there are extraordinary limits to, to the Trump brand and Trump philosophy. Just one more piece of this in terms of the, the, the policy and political implications. This basically means that Democrats are not going to get steamrolled on gerrymandering in 2021 in Virginia. That's a big deal. Another thing. Well, th- let's these, explain that. That's confusing stuff yeah. because it's the party in control of a state legislature who draws the map for congressional districts for the state. So they can draw a, a bullshit map 
in which can the other do. Part, they can and do. That's why the maps of congressional districts look ridiculous, like right. like pieces of pasta or puzzle pieces that exclude groups from the other party. So this came into really sharp relief after the midterm uh, congressional elections of 2010, when Democrats not only got thumped in Congress, but they lost a ton of state houses and they lost a ton of state legislative seats. And that trend continued basically un- until this year, where where they've lost something like a 1,000 state legislative seats since 2009 across the country. And what that allowed Republicans to do, because of the timing of those midterm elections, was there was the 2010 census. And so they redraw the congressional districts and the state legislature, House districts, especially uh, after the census year. And so they did that in 2011. And actually, Ed Gillespie, who was a Republican sort of uh, party official at the time, was in charge of raising money for a lot of the state houses races in 2010, and specifically sold donors on the idea that they were going to be able to redraw the districts. In Virginia, they went to town. There have been a lot of challenges in court because they've definitely limited the number of, for example, uh, black state lawmakers and black members of Congress. And so there's a whole question as to the constitutionality of a lot of the the districts. And and in some cases, they have been ordered to be redrawn. Uh, But so, A, it's remarkable that the Democrats could pull this off notwithstanding the way these districts were drawn in a way that was more favorable to Republicans. And on top of that, it means that come 2021, after the next census, you're going to have a Dem governor and you're going to have very close margins at the very least in the state Senate and the Virginia House, which means that if the legislature comes up with a redistricting plan that Governor Ralph Northam doesn't like, he can veto it and he can also go on TV and rail against it and they can come up with a better compromise. So this, this has far-reaching implications. Another thing that I just want to point out – Virginia Democrats have been desperate to expand Medicaid. Everybody, you would think Virginia, it's not that much of a conservative state. It's sort of like a swingy yeah, Democrat state. Yeah, I didn't realize that before this week. They right. didn't have it, the Medicaid expansion? So there are 400,000 low-income Virginians who would get health insurance if Virginia were allowed to – uh, to use the Affordable Care Act funding to expand Medicaid. And in the past – the 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 Republican controlled legislature would not allow it uh, to really even I, I think come up for a full, or, or there w- there would be a vote on it and they would vote it down. Now if they can if it ends up being fifty fifty and there's a power sharing agreement they might be able to pick a Republican or two off. It could be really big for ordinary this, people. Uh, really quick prediction time, Elise. Democrats will take back the U.S. House of Representatives. <laughs> In 2018? It's hard because of uh, all the gerrymandering stuff that you talked about. But I, I think that what happened on Tuesday only, like, motivates the resistance-type people even more. A lot of the – we didn't really talk about it, but a lot of these big victories of, you know, people who are trans and people who are the first um, black elected official of whatever um, – you know, wherever they are, there's all of these stories from around the country. And I think that that probably helps motivate a lot of people. And if they can keep that going, um, maybe we'll flip some seats. I'm sorry to put you on the spot. I myself am trying to make much bolder predictions. So I'm going to... My bold prediction is probably not. Oh, man. that's a. am going to translate that to no yeah. in the boldometer. <laughs> I, I boldly say that they will retake the House. Democrats will take the House back from Republicans. Tax reform or no? 
Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I tend to err on the pessimistic side because, you know, all of my predictions were foiled in November 2016 and I still haven't recovered from that. But It's so I'm, okay. I'm if, you, gonna... if you're wrong, you just eat a shit sandwich the next day <laughs> and you move on with your life. I, I think just one little thing to add to what Elise said because there were just so many remarkable milestones. There was the first transgender lawmaker in Virginia that was seated. We believe maybe the first openly transgender lawmaker who was elected and seated uh, in the country. It's sort of a debate as to exactly where that stands. Uh, we have a Liberian refugee who was elected mayor of Helena, Montana, just the second black mayor in Montana's history. And there, there are assorted stories like that across the country that are really remarkable. And I think a big part of that is is just that there are a lot more people running for office. I mean, there, there are these startup groups like Run for Something, and there are people in their 30s and 40s, progressive people. It's a generation that tends to be a little bit more on the progressive side that are deciding after the election of Donald Trump that they couldn't sit on the sidelines anymore. And I think that it, it doesn't guarantee or really say anything about whether Democrats will win the House. But I think it bodes well because it really does help to have people that are talented, likable, disciplined, that have inspiring stories like that. Uh, the exit polling in Virginia made it really clear that this was all about Donald Trump. Like by a two to one margin, people said, yeah, I'm, I'm voting because I'm fired up about the president. Don't like it. Not happy with Republicans. Was, do you know if that was true generally? I assume that it was because why would it be different in, in Virginia and not all these other places? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I don't know if it was true in the New York City mayor's race, which also occurred on Tuesday. But yeah, if you look at New Jersey, Virginia, I mean, New Jersey it was just a case of the unpopularity of Chris Christie and Phil Murphy being a guy who was generally likable, talented, and had endless amounts of money. Um, I think in Washington State, again, Washington State, a Democratic-leaning place, but it, it's always been hard to get the Democratic coalition out in the off years, and and. Some of the, and when you look at some of the groups that vote Democratic in presidential elections, people with lower incomes, sometimes uh, people who are more likely to be from communities of color, younger people, for vote, whatever reason, they tend to vote less frequently than some of the Republican base voters. This showed that with a guy like Donald Trump there, it, it, it really galvanized people to come out. And it also may just be a pattern – the reverse may also be true, which is that Republicans – appear to have been less motivated as well. When they're, when they're guys in power, that hasn't thing. Daniel Marins, Elise Foley, thank you for your bold predictions. And Daniel, thanks so much for your reporting. No problem. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Jessica Schulberg. Hello. And my other colleague, Akbar Ahmed. Hi. Some of the biggest news this week was not in the United States. It was in Saudi Arabia, where the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has apparently rounded up all his uh, rivals and some of his political opposition in a development that could have massive global consequences. It didn't right away. It's a Saudi Arabian affair, but... Akbar, you've been following this pretty closely. What is going on? And how is the Trump administration possibly enmeshed in what's happening? Uh, I'd say what's going on is there are kind of three centers of power in Saudi Arabia. One is the royal family, one is private business, and the third is religious establishment, right? So Mohammed bin Salman went after the religious establishment a couple of months ago. Now he's gone after the private business community and the royal family, which is all to say like he's trying to centralize his power, cut out other people's influence, money all that. However, Saudi has never been run in that centralized way. You know, this man is going to be king by the end of the year, probably. That's fine. But we have never seen like a one-man state in Saudi Arabia the way you would see it, even in a place um, like, like China or Russia or wherever else. So what does that mean? I think that's, that's really potentially dangerous. Um, the Trump administration is supporting it. President Trump said, the Saudis know what they're doing okay. on Twitter. And this has been compared to Xi Jinping consolidating power in China for the same reason, anti-corruption, even though the very act of rounding up political opponents would appear to be quite corrupt to me. Well, Mohammed bin Salman is a man who saw a yacht owned by a rich Russian and bid $500 million for it on the spot, right? I mean, there is it's not like this branch of the family is totally transparent about their wealth and you men- sources thereof. You mentioned him attacking the religious pillar uh just are you now people may have heard that they are lifting their ban on women drivers was that part of what you're describing i'd say that's part of it but he did arrest a number of prominent clerics as well um as well as some prominent liberals so it's really a matter of it's it's not even like i don't like clerics or i don't like liberals it's just anyone with a voice on a platform if it's not me has to go so there's also this effort to liberalize sorry and, but arresting people is not exactly part of that. It's This is really about one man consolidating power. I think Western narratives have a really powerful like effect, uh, in, especially in the Middle East. And so there's two narratives that matter here. Like One is the war on terror narrative. He's very much about, I will fight terrorism. I will fight extremism. Therefore, trust me. And the second is this idea of like using soft imagery, right? So like women at the wheel, suddenly this place is so much more liberal and modern. We trust Saudi in a way we didn't before. It's a PR strategy, I'd say. And a pretty effective one, I would argue. I mean, Saudi Arabia did an incredible job after 9-11, kind of strengthening its alliance with the U.S. and casting itself as the number one U.S. ally in the Middle East to fight terrorism. And I think quite successfully, it was able to deflect a lot of negative attention around the fact that a lot of the 9-11 hijackers were from Saudi, that there is an issue of homegrown extremism in Saudi Arabia. And like Akbar said, I think they've done a pretty good job um, making the point that, you know, we're going to make slow, incremental, gradual, stable change. Like that's that's what Washington likes to hear. They don't want to hear, no, we're never going to let women drive because that's against our beliefs. And they don't want to hear, oh, we're going to have an uprising and a revolution and radically give everybody human rights because that's unstable. That's scary. Um, so I think they have really cast this in a way that is is comforting to the powers that be here. They also have made an effort to flatter President Trump. When he visited, they made sure there were billboards lining the highway that his caravan traveled. So 
the Trump administration may have been aware of this in advance or even been involved. I, I mean, they're on Twitter. I see like what you could almost call it conspiracy theories about Jared Kushner. Wannabe crown prince of the United States, Jared Kushner, did travel to Saudi Arabia to meet crown prince Mohammed yes. bin Salman. But so before before we start recording, I asked Akbar if it was uh, reasonable to compare Mohammed bin Salman and Jared Kushner. But it's not because Kushner doesn't actually have any power or talent. Or legitimacy or anything, right. Or, or, or you know, Mohammed bin Salman has... Whether you like them or not, he has uh, demonstrable results. He cut off Qatar. He killed uh, 10,000 civilians in Yemen and more. We'll daily. come to that in a minute. Right. But tell us about Jared Kushner's visit and, and you know, what that might mean that he had been there a month ago. Kushner has been in pretty constant contact with the crown prince uh, since last year, uh, since post-election. And this visit was weird because it was totally unannounced. So that's what's bizarre about the visit and, and irregular. We know Kushner loves him. We know they have this rapport and they're both big believers in this like progress without democracy model, right? The idea of like it can be shiny, innovative technology, but we don't need to have human rights. Right. Um, and so I, I wouldn't be surprised if MBS and Kushner, you know, like each other, but I would see it more as like the crown prince selling Kushner and Kushner kind of nodding and being starry-eyed. Yeah, I think it would be a mistake to imply that the Trump administration or Kushner were, like, encouraging this or, like, nudging it along or helping to plan this sort of purge. Um, But I do think there's legitimacy in the idea that the Saudis aren't really worried about a a blowback from Washington anymore. They know they're not going to have to answer for this. They know that they're not going to, you know, have Washington asking too many questions. President Trump was on the phone with King Salman around the time that this started or after it right had started? Right after it happened. And, and according to the readout, at least, which those readouts are definitely not uh, direct transcripts. <laughs> but according to the readout, there is no mention of the roundups. And then when he was asked about it more directly, as you said, he was very much like Saudi Arabia knows what it's doing. Like, we're not getting involved. So you do get the impression that they are taking advantage of indifference or unwillingness to condemn on the part of the, the Trump administration. Absolutely. And and I, I think it's really important to also note that that's not new. Like the Obama administration also did not actively encourage the Saudis to go to war in Yemen, but the Saudis knew they could go to war in Yemen, the Obama administration would sort of say whatever, do what you want. Right. Um, and we've seen the disastrous consequences of that for over two and a half years now. So this is a, a trend in the U.S., kind of backing away and letting the Saudis. And I mean, towards the end of the Obama administration, and it probably was due to the fact that it was towards the end of those officials being in office, but there was sort of a gentle, subtle pushback um, against civil- Saudi Arabia's airstrikes in Yemen and these atrocious civilian casualties in hospitals and schools in Yemen. Um, I think the, the White House said that they were going to reevaluate its support and they didn't really do anything about it. It's, it's our big planes that are refueling their planes in midair so that right. they can carry out these raids that are resulting in starving right. children and dead people. And we provide targeting assistance, which the Pentagon will, will or will not admit depending on what day you catch them. But they have said in the past that they help with targeting assistance. They don't have final sign off, um, but they sort of help direct where we're going to be bombing there. Um, and to the extent that the Obama administration was considering reevaluating its support, nothing tangible really came of that. And now the now Riyadh doesn't even have to worry about that at all. You're not going to hear that type of even implicit threat from the, the, the Trump, Trump administration, administration. Says bombs away, go right. ahead. 
Now, the crown prince, from what I have read, is essentially orchestrating this campaign in Yemen, which is a, a proxy war, essentially. What, what is happening with that right now? Um, right now, since the Saudis announced that purge, uh, that purge on Saturday, they have expanded their blockade of Yemen, which is a major risk. A top UN humanitarian official has warned this week that Yemen could face an even bigger starvation crisis and an actual famine. So Yemen's been on the brink of famine. Um, I believe 19 million people are food insecure for like two years. And now he's saying this could just tip it off. They've cut off all land, sea, air access to Yemen. Um, I think it's, it's, it's where he flexes his muscles, you know? I mean, Yemen was Mohammed bin Salman's original uh, kind of kind of testament to his power, and and he's not ending that war on terms that he doesn't like. Now, when people thought Donald Trump might be the dovish candidate, a lot of conservatives pointed to Yemen as disastrous Democrat foreign policy, allowing these massacres to come out and for the U.S. to be entangled in a regional conflict that didn't really directly affect us. Could, could you explain the, the regional entanglement and, and what they're actually trying to do in Yemen? Um, do you want to handle the Iran <laughs> bit and I'll handle Saudi this bit? This is about so, Iran. So, so, well, neoconservatives uh, say it's about Iran. So the, the Houthis are a separatist group in Yemen um, that are opposed to the Hadi government, which at various points is in hiding and not in the country. And mostly neoconservatives will say that the Houthis are an Iranian proxy. In reality, as Akbar helped report a couple years ago, the CIA has said that the Houthis and the Iranians have sort of a de facto alliance. The Iranians might help provide them with arms, but the Houthis don't report directly to Tehran. And I think we even reported that the Iranians um, discourage the Houthis against some of their more aggressive uh, military operations to take over big cities in Yemen. Um, So that fits in quite nicely with the Trump administration's narrative, which is that we have to curb Iranian influence in the region. We have to be tough against Iran, not just on the nuclear program, but in all of its regional activities. Um, So supporting the Saudis in Yemen, the Trump administration could say that they're also deterring the Iranians from expanding their influence into Yemen. And it's important to remember that the Saudis felt... uh They felt defeated by Iran at the time that they went into Yemen. The Houthis are an indigenous Yemeni group. They've been at war with the central government for decades. This is not surprising. Um, The Iranians went in and they said, here's a way for us to show, the Saudis went in and said, here's a way for us to show West Yemen up to Iran. Trump believes that and likes it. Is this gonna, is this one of these small conflicts that just escalates and draws in larger and larger powers? Well, there's another one in Lebanon that I think is a little more likely. Uh, at the same time as the purge, the Saudis announced that the Saudi-friendly prime minister of Lebanon, uh, Saad Hariri, would be stepping down from office, leaving the government he'd formed with the Iran-backed Hezbollah, which was really the only example of the Saudis and Iran both investing in the stability of a country in the Middle East. To revisit what you said at the outset, yeah. this, this purge, this consolidation of power in the conference does not seem like something that is good for regional stability. It seems like it's inviting uh, a lot of faith in the Saudis, and they haven't given a lot of evidence to have for that faith. To be I mean, a lot of faith in MBS in particular, and this very aggressive, uh, both domestic and foreign policy that we've seen him be carrying out over the past couple of years. Akbar, you had an interesting story about how one of the other princes arrested actually had ties to a White House lawyer, Ty Cobb, who is you know, defending Donald Trump against the, the Mueller investigation. And what, are the, what does it matter that this lawyer had had this client? Ty Cobb is uh, 
uh, this really interesting DC lawyer who's been around, you know, for decades. And the fact that Prince Al-Walid had this relationship with him and was was using him, in a sense, to win American support tells us a lot about the way the Saudis have played in Washington for years, which is, we'll cultivate this guy, who will get us that guy. Different princes playing off different parts of the U.S. political structure. I think what we've really seen now is Cobb's client, Trump, has been like, go ahead, arrest Prince Al-Walid. And that's another part of the shift we're seeing, which is a real placing of faith in one man in Saudi Arabia, no other power centers. Al-Walid was a very prominent progressive investor. He was someone the West loved. He was on CNBC all the time. He's criticized Donald Trump, made fun of him on Twitter. Right. Uh, and now he's in jail. So this is another way for the Saudis to say, I don't care what relationships you've had. Uh, it's over. It's, it's about the conference. It seems like another example of how this there could be unpredictable consequences from... What, right. what the prince is doing. And are they in jail or are they in a hotel? This is a, a quirky detail that I have not understood. Thing. They're in like it's one a of nice the. Jail. I've seen the pictures of this jail and it's one of the nicest jails I've ever seen. But it really is. I mean, it's, they it's are still in prison. jail. They like, are. It's still imprisonment. It's still not right. freedom to move. That around. was an interesting piece by a Bloomberg reporter who's had a relationship with our investor prince where he said they've been friends for years and he's been messaging him. They don't have cell phone access, they have nothing. They have no communication with the outside world. Okay. And Andy State is going to take yeah. Okay. Uh, Akbar Ahmed, Jessica Schulberg, thank you so much for explaining this to us. We'll thank be right you. back. And we're back. I'm Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Dana Liebelson. Hey, how's it going? Good. And my other colleague, Paul Blumenthal. Hello. We had another big mass shooting on Sunday at a church in Texas. This was occasioned by the usual thoughts and prayers that we hear afterward, calls for gun control that uh, fell on very deaf ears this time. You know, the last big shooting in Vegas, there was talk over the special equipment that had been used that allowed so much more rapid fire and even that has just fallen by the wayside. And what's worse is that now I think we need to bring to wider recognition a very disturbing ritual that occurs in internet fever swamps that are actually sort of entrenched in the right wing and the Donald Trump administration with these people who are like pseudo-journalists in some cases. And Paul and Dana had did a, a great story in which you explained exactly how it came about that people were saying before any information had emerged at all that the guy who shot up a church in Texas was a liberal activist, right? I mean, what, what, what was it that they were saying? Yeah, so, so what Paul and I tried to do is kind of track how these conspiracy theories spread um, right after a mass shooting. Usually after a mass shooting, we'll have kind of what you would view as like an information vacuum. And that's because we don't know anything about what happened yet. So we're sort of just sitting here as journalists waiting to see what kind of information is rolling in, who the shooter is, what a potential motive might be, that sort of thing. While we're waiting for that, conspiracy theorists and propagandists will sort of take that space to fill it with like as much, you know, fake news I hate to use that term, as they can. Um, so we sort of tried to look into how quickly that happens. Um, yeah. That's right. You know, shootings in major crimes are the subject of conspiracy theories. That's just inevitable. The most famous one was the shooting of President John F. Kennedy 
and you know that continues to to uh, bubble and froth. But what your story revealed is that there's a real ecosystem that feeds on itself. And how did it start after the the Texas shooting on Sunday? Yeah, I mean, this it, it started really fast. And I think in this situation in particular, it, w- it was very much about like a broader news story, a broader fake news story that had been going on for about a week uh, where conservatives had been saying that Antifa, which is sort of like this loosely connected group of anarchists and any fascists, anti-fascists who, who oppose, uh, you know, President Trump. They also hate Democrats, but Republicans like to say they're a boogeyman. They're like they're like the militant wing of the Democratic Party, which is nonsense. Um, but they said that there was going to be an Antifa apocalypse, where they were going to overthrow the Trump administration and kill white people. And some of this came about from a satirical Twitter account who said that, like, the Antifa super soldiers, let's join together and behead white people. But it was a joke. Um, So to put this into, like, context, right-wing media had been saying this was going to happen on Saturday. November 4th. November 4th. November 4th. There was going to be this sort of apocalyptic Antifa uprising. Yeah, There were actually protests planned. Yeah, but they were sort of like these minor political protests, sort of without incident. Yeah. Then Sunday happens. So then on Sunday. News of the shooting. So you get news of the shooting and it first, you know, gets reported basically that what we found on Twitter around like 1.24 p.m. uh, by a local San Antonio reporter. And then by 1.58, you have this right wing media personality who uh, previously spread the Pizzagate conspiracy that Hillary Clinton and John Podesta were running a pedophile ring out of a pizza shop in Washington, D.C. Which is not true. Uh, Thank you. The guy's name is Mike Cernovich, and he had been following this reporter on the ground, retweeting him. And then he sent his own tweet at 1.58 p.m., so about 30 minutes after this had first been reported, where he noted that the church had a largely white denomination – and then, to quote, with a question mark, asked Antifa terrorist attack. Okay, so within like within two hours of the, it was this much less happened. than that. I would say it was about based on our calculations, like thirty minutes after the first news of the shooting had broken. Cernovich decided to to make some shit up. And he's, say, he's speculating, you know. He's, he's just. Like, a, I'm asking questions I'm asking here. Questions, right? At this point, we knew nothing. We didn't like. We didn't know who the alleged suspect was. We didn't. You know, we knew very, very little. So he's already speculating before we have any information. So at 3 p.m., we then start seeing a screenshot of an alleged message from some guy on Facebook named Dave Pollock. And it says it's on like a uh, an anti-fascist group message board on on Facebook. And he says, go after the heart of the far right conservative churches. This is just some random comment on some thread that includes a lot of people trolling and, you know, like they're talking about where to protest. And so this immediately would become a point for all of the conspiracy theorists that this guy, Dave, was involved. Okay, so people would then afterwards start citing this fake report to say, look, there's reports. Well, I think what conspiracy theorists were trying to say is that Dave was somehow connected to Antifa and had somehow inspired the shooter. So to be clear, this Facebook post from Dave, which may or may not be real, 
was actually made like prior to the shooting. So all of a sudden people started like pointing to it as evidence of something. At this point, we still knew nothing about anything related to the shooting. But 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 pretty soon you have a blockbuster Facebook post that gets shared hundreds of thousands of times. Yeah, so what happened is, and we, we often see this after a shooting, like, you know, the suspect will be released and immediately a bunch of, you know, some journalists and just people on the internet will try to scope out all of their social media accounts and see, you know, what did this person like on Facebook as trying to draw, like, some kind of motive. Um, so that's what we sort of saw happened here, and, and people started pulling up this alleged Facebook page that belonged to the suspect, Devin Kelly, that showed that he liked atheist pages and CNN and some other things. So they immediately grabbed onto that as more evidence to, you know, fit their prior theory that he had to be some kind of, like, Antifa mastermind. Yeah, they found a LinkedIn account that said that he causes he cared about were animal welfare, children, civil rights and social action, human rights— and to, you know, these right-wing propagandists spreading conspiracies online, uh, this seemed to prove to them that he was some kind of social justice warrior, a liberal who, you know, was affiliated with the Democratic Party in some way. Of course, you know, we looked into how LinkedIn allows people to choose their causes, and it's from a pre-filled drop-down menu. So he didn't write any of these, you know, you could – Say you like animal welfare because you own a dog. Uh, okay, so you know, the, human rights can mean a lot of things. After police finally identified this guy because he was dead, that's when even more speculation kicked off. It was no longer about it was this fake Dave person. It was going to uh, social media pages that did belong uh, probably to the uh, shooter. Yeah, and then making up all kinds of weird stuff about what he might have believed and why he might have done it. Right. So we see this happening. People will weave, you know, some actual real information with some that they're just making up to fit their own political narratives. Um, I think this is like a good point to note that like authorities said on Monday that they had no evidence that this was politically motivated. They didn't believe it was racially motivated or caused by religious beliefs. So, you know, all this speculation that was happening prior to the police saying that, you know, it was happening without any kind of real evidence. It was just being based on, like, internet stuff. So the, the, it had turned out that, like with a lot of mass shootings, there was a strong domestic violence component in that this person was targeting the church because he believed his... I don't think we know the motive yet. I think authorities have just sort of noted there was... He had a, he had a pretty serious history of domestic violence and... There was a domestic incident. But the whole point is that the people writing these conspiracy theories and these stories, they're writing in this, like, authoritative way. Like, we're we're Mm -hmm. the ones telling you the truth about what's really going on here. But the truth is, like, no one knows anything yet, you know? It's it's hard to, like, figure these things out. And that's, you know, normally the case with these kind of mass shootings. A lot of them take years to actually – of actual reporting by a a reporter or investigations by the FBI or other criminal investigators. You know, like Columbine, people believe so many different things about Columbine and almost every single one of them is false. Uh, You know, the trench coat mafia that they were bullied, uh, that they were outcasts, all this kind of stuff is, is all completely false. And people probably still believe that because that's sort of what filled the vacuum. Immediately after the shooting, people want an explanation. I mean, it's a scary thing. These, but, it, these it things seems, but it seems like in the case of these sort of Pizzagate websites, it's not that they want an explanation. It's that they want to make up one. 
right and, that they, and that they're they have a yeah. lot of practice and I, doing I'm, it. I mean, well, I I think there, there's two separate things going on here. There's the Pizzagate type people, and what they want really is, uh, you know, they have a predetermined goal of advancing a political agenda, and they want to harm their political opponents. And the way to look at this is that it's propaganda. You know, yeah. they're trying to push a propaganda narrative to try to help their political goals be achieved and, you know, hurt their political opponents who might, uh, you know, stop them from happening. So, like, saying the shooter is Antifa, he's a Democrat, neither of which are true, um, you know, that helps them achieve their political goal. And it also helps muddy the whole uh, – the other thing is it, it just creates confusion yeah, and people get confused. And then I think on the other hand, there are these like actual fake news sites. Like one of the things that we cited was a website called Your News Wire, which wrote the first big article about like a shooter immediately after his name was released that sort of called him Antifa. It had all this fake information from a text from a guy named Brian uh, Cousin in parentheses that said that there were two shooters, which there weren't, that they threw an Antifa flag over the pulpit, and then that they killed people who failed to properly recite phrases from Karl Marx's Das Kapital correctly. Um, this, was, this did not happen. None of There's this no happened. evidence this happened. It's, it, it's like so hilariously, obviously false. Uh, so it, the the author is Baxter Dimitri. We couldn't find anyone by this name in like U.S. public records. But what I what I like sort of love about this story is it takes something that like almost seems like a legitimate journalistic technique. Like, look, we're publishing these text messages from this source that we just talked to. Yeah. But they don't say like anything about Brian, who he's a cousin of, how he could potentially know anything about the shooting. I mean, and they obviously didn't respond to any of our questions about this. You try to contact the authors and the administrators of this website. Yes. Yeah, which is yeah. a well-known fake news website right. run by people who I think so, they're, they're basically trying to game Google advertising to get money. There is this phenomenon and, of uh, fake news that isn't obviously political in which they're just trying to hijack virality to, to sell yeah, ads. And, and then so this story was shared on Facebook at when we published our story, 264,000 times. I think it's up to 267,000. So, I, I mean, this morning. that's about as viral as you can get. Yeah. Our, you know, our story debunking these conspiracy theories is now at 21,000 shares on Facebook. Ooh. So that's about that's actually, we're, that's we're under, not winning. That's under that's 10%. <laughs> but that's a lot still. <laughs> right. So uh, what I think is that uh, even though conspiracy theories and information vacuums have been a thing in the wake of violent crimes and mass shootings since since they've happened. I think there's a qualitative difference now that, and that it's uh, – especially in the last like year and a half where there's a, a real effort to brazenly lie without consequence and, and it's a sort of Pizzagate thing. They've, they've uh, – practice doing it and it's it's like a, a part of the ritual now along with the the tweets about thoughts and prayers yeah and i think it's you know it, it, i found this whole reporting process like pretty frightening in terms of how often or how how quickly this news was shared and how far it got before you know we'd written anything about what was going on um and i just found it pretty uh disturbing and also, I think, you know, w what I was sort of tweeting out is, like, if you're reading news after a mass shooting and it really conveniently 
fits your political narrative and you don't know where it came from, it doesn't seem verified, like maybe take a deep breath and think, you know, even though this fits my convenient narrative, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Yeah, when it's a news story about who did a crime and why, maybe just wait. Right. And that applies to either side. Yeah. You know, we see this happening on both sides. All right. Dana Liebelson and Paul Blumenthal, thanks so much for talking about your story. Thank you. Thank you. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney. And this week we were joined by HuffPost reporters Elise Foley, Daniel Marins, Akbar Ahmed, Jessica Schulberg, Dana Liebelson, and Paul Blumenthal. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.